This is On Call with Dr. Dave, and today we're talking to Nurse Amy. Nurse Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Hi, I'm Nurse Amy. I have been in the medical field for about 16 years. I started off as a CNA and worked for way too long as a CNA, so I uh, finally got my nursing degree. I've been a nurse since 2016. How long were you a CNA? Um, Let's see, nine years. Nine years. So I think CNA is one of those like roles where you have to deal with some of the grossest things in medicine. Everything, you know, they, there's that old phrase that shit runs downhill. And CNAs, I've learned, have deal with a lot of shit. So <laughs> yes. it just, it shows how much you care yeah. that you stay there. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I mean, as a CNA, I shouldn't say that I was a CNA for too long. I just, I wasn't decided in nursing. Um, I worked in like assisted living and like long-term care. And I saw what the nurses did there. And I just, I didn't want any part of it. And so I, I got my CNA in high school and I just kind of went back and forth and back and forth and um, finally got a CNA job in a hospital and saw what nurses did within a hospital setting. And that's when I decided. So once I decided nursing was for me, then it was like I finished my prereqs, got into the program and immediately started. So it was good. But CNA work is, it's rough. And it was some of the, some of the best jobs that I've had, but like you said, like it's, I mean, the shit is real. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So when you think about your career, what kind of stories stick out? What have you thought about this week as you've thought about coming on to the show? um, I, I have a few that I have come across. Um, Honestly, some of, some of the things that stick out the most is when I've connected with patients. Um, I think just as a, as a person um, going into the medical field, I've always wanted to help people. And I know that is like the most cliche reason, right? But, but it is true. My birth mother, she had cancer for years and then cancer is like saturated in my family. Um, and so I really wanted to give back. I really wanted to just be there for others like some nurses and doctors have been there for my family. Um, and one really cool thing, just personally, um, I got to work as a CNA and hired on as a nurse, um, at a cancer facility where my sister was taken care of. And so I, I worked alongside the nurses and the doctors who physically touched my sister's life. Um, and it just was really cool. So for me, those stories stood out the very most. And I do like, I have some shocking ones and some like funny, weird ones. But for me, just as a person, it's those that just have touched my life. And um, I just, I don't know, maybe I'm a little more sentimental, especially, I mean, I'm pregnant. And so those hormones are going through me. And I just, those ones came to mind. So I hope that that's okay. <laughs> of course, we're, we're here for any story you want to share. And that is a sweet connection to be working with the people that cared for your sister. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. But the, one of the first ones that came to mind, I was working um, inpatient medical rehab in the hospital. And that, I mean, if you have any any experience with medical rehab, it's rough. It's physically really, really demanding. Um, I worked mostly with spinal cord injury, stroke patients, 
and uh, brain injury patients. And so just physically, I'm 5'3". I'm not, I'm not a big person. And so I was working, working alongside people who were a lot stronger than I was, but mostly just we knew physically how to handle these patients. Um, and I, I cared for a man who I can't even remember how, but he had a spinal cord injury. And I mean, from, from the neck down, he was paralyzed. And um, we tried, the, like the charge nurses tried to assign people to uh, the same patients. If they were back, like if we did our three in a row or whatever, we tried to be the same, have the same assignment so that we could get to know and they could get to know us. Um, and I did, this was one where he was like my long-termer and, um, he was really, he was a shy guy, but then also like so vulnerable, right. To be like, we literally had to do everything for him. And so I can't imagine being in that position, but, um, there was one time it just so happened. And as a CNA, it's not often, but I had a really light assignment. And so I was able to spend more time with him. And he, he just reminded me of like that big, like, I mean, he was a physically very big man, but just that like, like Papa Bear and just like a big man, but just cuddly and warm and loving. And, um, he, he really wanted to be clean shaven. I can't even remember why, but it was something like his wife was going to come or his daughter was going to come some, some event later on that day, he wanted to be clean shaven. He wanted to look nice. And so, absolutely. Let's do it. So I did that. And I like, I think I was like 19 or 20 at the time. And so I didn't have a lot of experience shaving men, but um, I helped him get cleaned up, but I really took time to really clean him up. And I remember, um, cleaning his face, getting him more presentable and cleaning behind his ears. And they were, you think like you and I, we can just scratch our scratch and, and, and clean what we need to clean. He could not clean behind his ears for like the last two months. And it's not a place that people think about when they're doing a bed bath real quick because they have six other patients to take care of. Right. So they were really, bad, really, really bad. And I just washcloth after washcloth, I was getting rid of just the grime that built up behind his ears. And, and he could see this and I tried to be as discreet as possible. Um, but it was a lot <laughs> and he could see what I was doing. And at the end, he had tears in his eyes and he said, they have itched so bad. And I didn't know what, I didn't know what was causing that. I didn't know how to ask for this help. And he, he was so grateful and it just like, what a little thing to do, but it meant so much for him. And, um, as you might know, spinal cord injury patients, like their one stay in rehab is typically not their last day, right? They are return patients and a lot of complications down the road. So it was, it was probably like a year later, I was floated to a different floor, just a generic med surge floor. and. Um, I walked into a patient who was calling and it happened to be him. And it took me a second because it was a new room. It was a new area. And a year later, um, 
but he recognized me right away. And he just said, Amy, it's so good to see you. And we both, like, once I realized who it was, we both just got a little teary. And it just was, it was really great to see him again. And he had put on a little weight and he was, he was doing physically well, other than this one complication that put him back in the hospital. But, but it was really good to just see him a year later. Yeah. That's a sweet story. Just that extra attention to detail, just that brief moment where you saw him as a person, not necessarily just as an assignment. Yeah. Um, let's see. I worked in oncology for a few years as a CNA, like while I was in nursing school. Um, and I, I was in a really great place because it was, I did post-surgical oncology. And so all of my patients who had to stay in the hospital after surgery, they would come to me. Um, typical stay was like three to five days and then that was it. And they'd go home and they'd heal for chemotherapy or radiation or whatever they were going to do. Um, and so even though I was an oncology CNA and nurse, I never did chemo. I never, cause the patients, they weren't strong enough for that yet. Um, but I loved, especially with the cancer in my family, I loved giving back to those patients. Um, however, in nursing school, I, my first day in clinicals, I did women's health. I knew I was just drawn to it. And I, I remember like, even as, even as a CNA on other floors, people talking about women's health and like, you're just giving ibuprofen and stool softeners. Like I just didn't, I didn't think of it as like, Oh, that's what I want to do. Right. Like that as a nurse, that's what I want. Um, and so it was the last place I wanted the ER. I wanted to be a flight nurse. Like I just had so many different aspirations, but the first day that I actually got to like do clinicals in women's health, I knew that that was it. So here I was working oncology. Um, I did, oh gosh, I think I did two years as a CNA and then two years as a nurse. And I told my manager, I said, I, I want my foundation here because it was a great, it was basically a med surge floor. Just the patients happened to have cancer, but, um, I did a lot of nights. I loved nights, but, um, I got to connect with a lot of patients just on a different level. And, um, I, I remember after I put in my two weeks to move, I had gotten a job in women's health. Um, I just thought like, I'm going to coast from here on out. This is going to be fine. My assignments are great. I know that like the end is in sight. And on my very last night, this was like, so 7 PM is shift change, right? We come on 7 PM and, um, it was literally, I mean, two minutes after report. So like 7.35, something. And a patient is walking in the hallway and immediately coats, just falls down, coats right there. And I I had never done CPR, physical CPR, not on a mannequin, right? And, and there he is on the ground. We all, there's not even a crash cart, like right there because he's in the hallway, right? And there's not suction. There's not like all of our stuff that we normally have. Of course, it's just a runaway and we have our, our gophers that go for everything, but, but it was the messiest code that I've seen 
not in the ER just because of the location where it was. Um, and I, I was able to do CPR for this man. Um, and it was, we worked on him. I don't even know, 20 minutes or so. And under my hands, he came back and that feeling of him like struggling against me was very, it's very unique. Um, but I could feel him coming back and wanting to breathe and, and his body just needing that. Um, he, unfortunately we got him back. He went over to the ICU and they coded him like two or three more times. Um, they finally were able to contact family and they were able to get there and to say their goodbyes. And then they just all decided that if he coded again, then it, that was it. Um, so he did, he did end up passing away, but it was, it was a grand finale to my work on oncology for sure. But it was just that moment of feeling him come back under, under my hands was very unique. Well, and then the moments that the family had to say goodbye there, there is something different about coming and having your loved one already of having passed versus being there in the moment and saying your goodbye before they pass. Even if they're not aware or awake, there is just yeah. it's better and easier for the family. So even though the patient didn't make it out of the hospital, just that extra little time that you gave the family to say their goodbyes is meaningful. Yeah, I was very grateful that they were able to come and be there with him before he passed. So sweet. That would mean a lot to me as a family member because it alleviates a lot of the, I should have been there. What if I would have done this? What if I would have done that? And that time, like Dave said, it's just so precious. Well, and they were like the family. I can't remember everyone, but I think he had a wife and like two or three kids that had been on and off there. And the wife, I don't think she left his bedside from surgery on. And this was the one time where he was without family. And so it just like, she went home to take a shower and, you know, clean up and get a good night's rest in her own bed. And then it just, I mean, it just happened so fast, but I'm grateful that she was able to be there. Um, one little story. Um, I was a CNA on inpatient rehab and I was caring for a teenage boy who had a brain injury. And so he wasn't in his right mind. And I would never hold this against anyone, but especially like this, but um, I was assigned to his room to be a one-to-one -one sitter um, just to make sure that he didn't hurt himself, get up unattended and all of that. Um, and he got very angry that I was there. I mean, I was like his bouncer, right? Like you, you can't, you need to stay there. And, and he also was like six, three. <laughs> so he was very big and I was very small. And, um, he, he punched me right in the throat and like, I'll take a punch to the arm, right? Like whatever, <laughs> that's, that's fine. But to be punched in the throat and like, I couldn't breathe for a second and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and it just like takes you off guard. Um, but I was able to get the help that I needed and he was safe and they switched me out with a much bigger person, but it was, that was like shocking. I'd never been punched in the throat. I'd never been hit right there. And it was, it took me back. <laughs>
Yeah, unfortunately, we've heard that from almost everybody in medicine that at least every person we've talked to has been assaulted at least once. And it, it's hard to know what to do because these patients, like you said, it's not their day-to-day -day lives. And sometimes they're not in the right mind due to things that have happened that brought them to the hospital, medications that are on in the hospital. They're just not clear-headed. And yet we still need to protect our nurses, our doctors, our our CNAs, our CNAs everybody that's yeah. involved. They need that protection but it's just a very highly intense situation and there's only so many of us to go around. So I, I think that's a conversation we need to have more is what we can, what can we do to protect us? The, you know, the healthcare workers, how do we stay safe while still taking care of people? And I don't think I have answers yet other than I need more people to go into medicine and they hear that story. Maybe they don't want to go into medicine, but <laughs> we need more bodies. We need more people that care that will be there. And that'll alleviate a lot of the, you know, the staffing issues and the care issues, just more support. Absolutely. I, I mean, I don't have answers either. And it's, it's hard to, because like you said, that either they're not in their right mind or for the you know, physical reason that they're there, or what have it, but often they're not in their right mind because they're literally having the worst day of their life. Right. Like, and I'm not in my right mind when I'm having the worst day of my life. And so I have to just think of these people, like even this guy had a very valid reason to not be in his right mind. Um, when I have taken care of patients that, you know, or family members who are rude or, you know, like verbally assaulting, I just, I, I take that, like that's, they are under a lot of stress. They've never been in this situation before, or on the opposite side, when I was in labor and delivery, they are like full of excitement and full of just nervousness and there's so much going on and we often don't know how to control ourselves and some people who don't have as many coping skills they're not going to handle those situations as well as someone who does but i don't know i i think it is scary i think it is scary to be in the medical field there are so many people who who look at us um, is like glorified customer service, right? And people aren't always the nicest to, to those that serve. Mm -hmm. ultimate, but. That is true. <laughs> Very true. <sighs> um, do you have a story where people, like if you're at a party and you know, it just like everybody's taken aback by it, or, you know, you can get laughs from it or, it's like a family favorite. Dave has one among our friends. It's like epically legendary that everybody <laughs> wants to hear. Has to do with the stiletto going in someone's eye socket. Yeah, I think that's our episode four, if you want to listen yeah. to this one, I think with my friend Jamil. But yes. it's the story that people have heard me say, and then they like will remember and want me to tell other friends. So it's just that story that everybody knows that Anymore. I tell. <laughs> yeah. Um. The one that comes to mind that's like most like that, um, I was working labor and delivery. Um, I was like a week off of orientation. And um, like I had said before, I really like nights. I like, um, of course, it's hard to stay up, but I like that all the extra people aren't there. You know, extra management, extra like. I get that. Yeah. All the yeah. Everything like it's just let me do my job. I'll do it well. And then I'll go home and sleep. 
Um, but I worked at a very small hospital in labor and delivery. So it was just a community hospital. The doctors did not have to stay unless the patient was like going to deliver, um, like shortly going to deliver. And so as nurses, especially night nurses, like the docs don't want to stay around if they can go home. Um, we would do a lot of the hands-on and, um, I had a patient come in at like two or three in the morning and she was a second time mom. And so typically things go a little bit faster. And when I checked her cervix, I could tell like, this is, we're not quite there. She was like a five or something, but I could just tell like this baby's going to come when it decides when it's ready, it's just going to come. And I want, I was, I mean, how am I supposed to know? I was a week off orientation, you know, I'd only been doing it for so long, but, um, I just had a feeling and I went out to my charge nurse. I think I should call my OB. And they're like, no, no, no. Like this is a seasoned labor nurse, right? Like you don't wake them up at three in the morning for a five. Okay. But I think the baby's going to come and still like, no, 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 don't wake him up. And, um, so she labored a little bit. She wanted an epidural, which like, okay, great. Um, cause you can't, you can't stop a woman who's not, who doesn't have medicine, right? Like you can't anyway. Um, she, she progressed kind of slower than I was expecting, but still not like the next time I checked her, she was a six. And then I checked her like 30 minutes later and she was a seven. So she was progressing, but I thought she was going to be like a stop and drive. <laughs> Um, she got her epidural. She was comfortable. And I went in to check her and she was an eight and her water was still intact. And that was like my saving grace. I think like she had her water been broken. Like that was it. Um, and I told her I'm going to go call the doctor. And I had not that I like tattled on my charge nurse, but I had just explained the situation. Like, no, your doctor's not coming right now. My chart, my more superior nurse thinks we should call him a little closer to the delivery, right? And, and so I told her, you're an eight. I think this baby's coming. I'm going to get the doctor. If you need anything, you call me. And I turn around and her water breaks. <laughs> In my head, have you seen the meme of the ostrich that's like, shit, 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 shit. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this baby's coming now. <laughs> um, and so I go over, I get my gloves on. Sure enough, her water is everywhere. And I see the baby coming. And, and I was like, literally brand new baby labor nurse. And this baby, I couldn't stop this baby. So I call on my little Vocera and say, I'm delivering unattended in room, whatever. And talking to the nurses afterwards, no one heard it except one nurse who this was her first night off of orientation. I don't know what happened. I don't know like what connection was lost, but so here comes like an even more baby nurse than me. We need help now. <laughs> um, and I delivered this baby with one glove on, I think. Like, I didn't have time to get my sterols on or anything and this baby just came and it was beautiful. Like it was, it was perfect. It was so fast. There was no trauma other than like me emotionally, but um, the baby was just, I, I remember holding the baby and saying, 
like, I want you to meet your baby. I don't know what else to say. Like, this is my first time. I don't know. <laughs> and, um, it was so, it was very, very special. And then after, I don't know, after recovery, like two hours later or something, I had told the patient, I just want you to know that was my first delivery alone. And they were shocked. I'm like, you did great. <laughs> but it, was, it was a good one. It was a really good one. <laughs> the doctor came in. I think he made it like 10 minutes later or something. So <laughs> he, uh, he was surprised, but yeah. I remember telling parents when I was on labor and delivery that babies don't respect our schedules at all. And this is the first taste of that. The kids aren't going to follow your schedule. It's going to take a long time. And the first time that they just ignore your schedule is being born. They're not going to be born when you want them to, when it's convenient. They're just going to come when they want to. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we, had a, we had a mother when I was on like labor and delivery in medical school. She went into labor. She got checked in. They put her on a bed. But she was in active labor, so they didn't put her in a wheelchair. They put her in the bed. And they wheeled her upstairs in the elevator. We got her into the room. We lifted the blanket to be able to check on progress and dilation. And the baby was between her legs. Just already out. She just <laughs> delivered the baby sometime between getting in the gurney and the like 60 seconds in the elevator to her room. And just baby sitting there. Hadn't cried yet. Just was barely oh. fresh out. Was just fully out between her legs. And hello, baby. <laughs> Seriously. That's a little bit of a shocker lifting that blanket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Well, similar to your patient coding in the hall, halls are just one of those places just things happen. Same time, same thing like Ellen labor and delivery. We had a mother that was just trying to move things along. She'd been labor for a few hours. She was sick of just kind of sitting around, um, kind of from a culture that you don't really stay in bed. And so she decided to just go for a walk. So she's out walking the halls. And none of us were there. We had to check the security footage later, but she just stops in the middle of the hall, in the middle of a walk, squats halfway down and just delivers that baby and catches the baby between her legs and stands up oh, just like a champ, just like dropping that baby, picking the baby up and then yelling for help. So <laughs> babies are no respecters of schedules. No, absolutely not. <laughs> yes. But it was always so interesting to me when I would have, it was usually like either the mother-in-law or the mother of the patient that like, so I had my babies in three hours and it's been four. Why isn't this baby here? <laughs> it's different. Like, I don't, I don't know how your experience was, but this is hers. But it just, it's so funny how people forget and like, it's, it's natural. It's a natural process and it is so different for everyone, but yeah. Just gonna take what it takes. You can ask that baby when it gets here. <laughs> I don't know. Um, another story that I have from labor and delivery, um, and again, it's it's just on like the touching side. But um, I, um, so I have my birth mother passed away when I was young from cancer, and I was seven, so it was it was a while ago. Um, but because of like things that I've done as an adult, like getting married without my mom, having kids without my mom, right? There are things that are in my life, big moments and just are really touching. And um, so I was caring for a patient who was having her first child and her mom had passed away within the last year, I believe it was either a year or two. Mm -hmm. And um, 
she, we just kind of connected over that, like doing big events without those that we love. And she, this, her labor was fine. And being her first, she took a while to push, which is pretty normal. Um, And I mean, average is like two hours for a first time mom, if not longer. Um, And she, we were getting into the third hour of pushing and she just was not making great progress. And, and so we were trying to coach her through things and, and making sure baby looked fine. Like everything was fine. It just was, it was really difficult for the patient. She was getting very fatigued. Um, and so we gave her a little break, um, from pushing. And then she, even though she did have an epidural, um, she still felt some pressure. So there came a point where she's like, I really need to push like this. I think the baby is closer. And so we start pushing again and again, not a lot of progress. Like even though her body was telling her it was fine, like it just, that baby was not quite ready. Um, and every, every delivery is a little different, right? Like you have some people who are very into music and distraction and they need people talking and they need, they need a lot going on to help them through it. And others who like don't want anyone to talk and they have quiet music and they have different things and it's just everything is different. And this room happened to be one of the more peaceful rooms. And, and she was pushing and then all of a sudden the baby didn't look great. And with every push, every contraction, the baby was having D cells. And so we all were getting nervous and like, we're so close this needs to happen. Um, but the baby was not tolerating it very well. Um, and the patient could tell that we were worried. We all had our poker faces on, of course, you know, cause we weren't C-section yet, but, um, she could tell that the stakes were a little higher and she just, she looked up just at the ceiling into the sky and said, mom, it's time to let go. I need my baby now. And sorry. Um, every eye in that room was just wet. Everyone was crying. And that baby was born within two minutes. Screaming. And everything was fine. But it just was, it was so touching to just be a part of that, that last moment that that grandma took with the baby and everyone could feel it. It was really cool. It was really, really cool. So sweet. You got some good ones, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just my pregnancy hormones, but, um, (laughs) let's see. Trying to think. Okay. I also did a stent in the ER. Um, because like I said, before I did my women's health clinicals, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so during nursing school, I think it was like my second or third semester in nursing school, I decided to um, apply for a job at my local ER and it was a trauma one center. And so I thought, this is great. I'll just get tons of experience before I go into this field. And um, the only position they had available was a huck. And I had never, I had never done any. I'm not familiar with that term is. It's like the secretary. 
I think okay. it's, it stands for health unit coordinator. Okay. And it, they're a secretary that does other responsibilities. And I'd always just been hands-on with patients. I'd always been the one to physically give the care. So it was very different for me to be the one on the phone. And, and, and I'm a millennial. Like I don't, I don't call people on the phone, right? Like I text people. Um, and so, and I worked night shift. And so I was calling and waking doctors up at two, three, four in the morning. And it just was not my normal thing. So I was, I was very out of my limit, but, or element. Um, but it was really cool. I really enjoyed a lot of my time in the ER. I did, it helped me. It opened my eyes to the other things in the ER. It's not all trauma. Um, in fact, from my point of view, it was a lot of psych. Well, I mean, just before I start this story, I was really shocked to be in the ER and, and to be, it was like a, a very central hospital within the city. And so much was going on every single night. To me, there was newsworthy things happening, right? And then I would go home the next morning or the next day and nothing would be reported about these things. And then I would see the things that were reported on the news and like, why, why is that newsworthy? Why is that? How? I don't know. It just, it really opened my eyes to like media and like what is important in the eyes of media and like how there are miracles happening in this hospital and then also like tragic, tragic things. And, and none of it matters to the media, you know, I don't know. It opened my eyes. Well, that's kind of what I'm doing here. I think these are the stories that are more interesting and more important for people to hear than most of what people hear. So that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is because I think people deserve to hear these stories. And also talking about treating our healthcare workers like glorified customer service. I think the way that we change that in people's minds is by humanizing to, a, a, I guess, a greater degree who is actually taking care of you by hearing what their day-to-day life is like, because a lot of people don't realize just how much care goes on, just how much care goes into cleaning a patient or to talking on the phone and, and the ends that you, I mean, the lengths you go to, to protect their privacy, like all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the reasons. And also that we do this and also for the mental health of healthcare workers. Yeah. We always feel better. Like everybody always feels better when they have somebody to talk to about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just what we talked about right there reminded me of something. And it's, it's a very, very little story, but um, I think it opened up my eyes and then those who were involved. I was a CNA working in assisted living. And so I worked with the same patients and the same people every single day. I was Monday through Friday you know, like kind of nine to five, which is, it was different, but, um, I, I was one of the lead CNAs. And so any problem they'd, they'd come to me, anyone, you know, um, the patients, the, the nurse on staff, the, um, culinary staff, they'd come to me. And, um, I don't even remember what the issue was, but our head chef came to me and said, like something is wrong with, cause we also, as the CNAs, we also served the food to these, um, these patients and, um, he didn't like some process that we were doing. And, 
And he made a very demeaning comment. And I was, I was surprised because he said it to me as a CNA, but he said, um, all you guys do is white people's asses. So why does that matter? And my job doesn't. And it was just like, I'm sorry, but we do what? <laughs> I take care of these people because they're unable to do that for themselves. And I serve these people because I love them because I have, I've been with them every day, you know, mostly more than their family members had been. And I build connections with these people and yeah, sure. I might clean them up, but I care for them. And I, after I said that, I could just see like the color left his eye or his face. And he just, his eyes were opened to what we did. It was taking that moment to like open his heart to some of the things that I did on a daily basis that wasn't just wiping someone. And he treated me differently after that, as he should have. <laughs> as but, he should. Well, and there's no such thing as just wiping somebody's ass. Even that is, that's a difficult thing to do for a patient, a person, an adult. That takes a lot of care and love to even just just do that. I mean, that in and of itself, that's a heroic thing to do for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that's great. I think it's good that you guys are getting stories from people and, and hopefully shedding some light on some of these things and opening other people's eyes to this. Um, but back to the ER story, cause this one, this one still sticks with me. Um, we had a trauma come in who, um, it was really early in the morning and he had been biking to work and it was still, it was still dark. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know everything involved, right? Like, I don't know if he was wearing reflective clothing. I don't know if he had a lamp on his bike. I don't know any of that, but it, it just, the circumstances were such that a semi truck driver made a turn and did not know that the biker was there and his trailer clipped the biker and dragged him. And when he was finally released is when another driver noticed um, and called 911, sat with him, but the semi-truck driver did not know. And so he continued on his drive. Um, this man was brought into the ER. He did not survive. And somewhere out there, there is a truck driver who does not know what has happened. And I think about that in like, what have I done to change the course of someone's life for good or bad that I don't even know. And, and this poor man's family. And I mean, it's not whose fault, right? Like you can't place fault on anyone. And it just happened in at like just the wrong time and this man's life was taken and it just there's there's no one responsible for it i don't i don't even know how to like put it in words but but yeah. there just was like no no consequence i don't know 
Yeah. And it's hard because life just keeps going on. So when something tragic happens, you want there to be a moment where everybody recognizes that a tragedy occurred or that there's some sort of that that life deserves to be held up and said, this happened. This is why it happened. Accountability or even just recognition of something happening and that this was meaningful. And then the person that ended up ultimately being associated, not necessarily maybe the cause, but part of the reason this man died, didn't even know. So it just seems that something was lost and something meaningful was lost and it went unrecognized, which is just hard to wrap your brain around that just that life is just gone and the person involved doesn't even know. So I, I could see how that would be just hard to wrap your mind around and just hard to really accept because you want it to matter. You want it to mean something. And also on the flip side, as a person, you want to know when you're making the right choice and the wrong choice. And you want to know that you're positively impacting somebody's life. And if you have a negative impact, you want to have a chance to make amends or to do something about it. And if you don't know, you're just stuck. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be hard. But uh, yeah, one of those things, one of those reasons to always be quick to forgive mm -hmm. and easy to tell people that you love them because we, there's no guarantee that guy was just on his way to work and then it's over. We, and we always take for granted that we have the next day, the next moment. Um, sometimes we can bring the patient back like your first story and the family gets to say goodbye, but sometimes that patient dies and we all have to live with the fact that that just happened and we weren't there. And that's okay too. I, I don't want people to think that they have to stay in the hospital every second, every minute, just in case they miss something or they're not there when it happens. Say what you need to, you know, take care of yourself, go home. It's okay to leave the hospital if you have a loved one there. You need to take care of your own strength and your own mental well being. You can't be there nonstop. Um, so um, I think we just need to take those moments with our loved ones and just don't take it for granted that we're going to see them at the end of the day. And also Absolutely. during this podcast, we've learned that if you are not there, there are incredibly caring people there who do stay that are caring for your loved one. If they pass and you're not there, they're not alone. They're surrounded by people who have gone to great lengths to care for them. Absolutely. I think there is a miss. I mean, it's like the basis of your podcast, I think, but like a miscommunication and misconception, uh, be even between caregivers and patients and patients and caregivers, right? Um, I think it is very easy for some caregivers, some providers um, to look at people as patients. And, you know, whether that's like, it's their three o'clock appointment or it's their fifth person that they've rounded on or whatever it is. It's, it's easy to become like a checklist for some people. Um, and then on the flip side, it's easy for patients to see caregivers as just someone giving a service and that's their job. Um, and I think stories like these um, and just giving people the benefit of the doubt and we all have good intentions or hopefully we all have good intentions and, and just knowing that at our core, we want to help you and patients need to be seen. Mm -hmm. Well, Amy, thanks for coming on and talking with us today. Yeah.
we appreciate your stories and we appreciate you and everything you've done for people. Thank you. This, I think this is a great, a great platform. Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.